morning, Keystone. Happy Father's Day. I would just uh, reiterate what Brandon said and, and uh, maybe add, dads never underestimate the influence you can have on your kid's life. Um, I, I think I've said this before, but I, I look back and would say one, one of the reasons uh, that I love God's word today is because my dad told me Bible stories when I was two, three, four, and five years old, and that God used that to capture my heart in many ways for the Bible. And the story we're looking at this morning is one of those I'm sure that he would have told me. Uh, We're going to be in Genesis 6 through 8, not going to read it all, but going to capture different parts of it this morning uh, in the story of the flood. Uh, I have a question to start out, though. How, how, or not how, I should say, uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning? And, and I mean that question uh, quite literally in the sense of like, what wakes you up and gets you moving? Uh, everyone, I think, has some sort of process, whether you realize it or not. And so h- how many of you are like, no alarm needed people? Your body is just kind of a finely tuned machine that wakes up. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, how many of you are single alarm people, right? All you need is that one alarm. You're up. You're ready to go. A couple of those. All right, now it's time to be honest. Uh, How many of you are snoozers? You hit the snooze button at least once, at least once, probably two or three times, okay? All right. Uh, How many of you are double alarmers? You set two alarms. Yeah, that's me. You set two alarms uh, with every intention to wake up when that first alarm goes off, knowing full well there's no way you're getting up until that second alarm goes off, right? I do this, and I go to sleep at night. I set that first alarm, think, man, I'm going to wake up early. This is going to be great. That alarm goes off. I think, what was nighttime Kyle thinking? He's, he's, he's not smart. Like, I have another alarm set. I'll wake up when that one goes off. Uh, how many of you are across the rumors? You, you put your alarm clock somewhere. You're hiding alarm clocks, in, maybe up in the ceiling to get out of bed knowing that you're just going to shut it off and like fall right back to sleep, crawl back into bed. Uh, And then how many of you have developed alarm immunity? You just sleep right through that alarm. Anyone that you sleep right through? All right, probably some of you, yeah. Uh, It's interesting. I was, uh, after high school, I went to a gap year program for a year. And part of that gap year program was that I was in a room uh, with 12 other guys that we had bunk beds in that room. And I remember one person had an obnoxiously loud alarm. If you've ever went away with other people or you've been in a situation like that, maybe you've experienced that where someone has that obnoxiously loud alarm. And I remember just being like jolted awake every single morning, like what is going on? Meanwhile, this guy is like sleeping right through it. Every morning, I'm shocked awake and he's just down there snoring, sleeping through it. Why, why, why did that happen? because he had become so familiar with it that it no longer affected him how it should. One of the dangers of familiarity with something is that it no longer has its appropriate effect on us. And one of the dangers, or maybe a better word is challenges, of being familiar with the Bible, if you've grown up hearing it, familiar with the stories of the Bible, and familiar with the God of the Bible, is that it no longer has its appropriate effect on us. And that what should leave us stunned and surprised doesn't because of our familiarity. The the God of the Bible should surprise us over and over and over again. That's the big idea for this morning. And, And there are certain stories in the Bible and parts of the Bible 
that should leave us surprised by God. And, and I would say the one we're going to look at this morning is one of those in Genesis 6 through 8, the story of the flood. But, but I want to suggest that what surprises us about this story is not actually the thing that should surprise us. What most often surprises us about the story is not actually the thing that should most surprise us. And, it, and it's only when we recognize what really should surprise us about this story that it has its appropriate effect on our lives. So, so here's where we're going. We're going to read part of Genesis 6 and then part of Genesis 7. Uh, and ultimately, we're going to look at what's, what's one thing from this story that might surprise us? What, what's one thing that does surprise us if we look at it honestly? And then that's, what's one thing that should surprise us? And then we're going to look at what what are three ways that our lives should be impacted if the right thing about this story surprises us in the right way. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read, starting in Genesis 6, uh, 1 through 14. Father, over and over again in your word, we hear the word, behold, behold, behold. And I think one of the reasons it's contained so often is because you want us just to stop and be stunned by you. And so God, I pray that that's what you would do this morning, that you would, again, stop us in our tracks and leave us surprised by you, overcome the type of familiarity we may have with your word and with you, and and leave us shocked in such a way where it leaves us praising you and also leaves our lives being changed and transformed by you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 6, starting in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Jumping down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now jumping over to chapter 7, starting in verse 15. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that move on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures, 
creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out everything that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The, the first thing that might surprise us about this story, and there's a very specific reason I say might, as I think we'll see, is this, that God is just. God is just. Genesis 6, 1 through 14 describes the spread of evil in this world and God's response to that evil. However we understand the the sons of God marrying the daughters of man and, and, and the Nephilim, and there are different ways to kind of understand these Whatever, however we understand it, it ultimately shows things are getting worse, much worse. Sin is spreading and multiplying and, and, and everything, there, it's filled with, the earth is filled with violence and corruption and destruction. And, and, and then this statement in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God sees all that is wrong and evil in this world. And he determines to punish that evil and remove it from this world. This is part of what justice involves, right? Punishing what is wrong. Punishing evil. And and making right what is wrong. And and I, I say that the truth God is just might surprise us because there's a sense in which we want God to be just. Think about it. There's a sense in which we want God to be just, but there's a catch to that desire. First of all, let's just think about the sense in which we want God to be just. We, we all long for justice. We all long for justice in some way. There are lots of examples from our culture that we could point to that, that highlight this kind of longing for justice, but I'll just point out two. What, one that's less serious and one that's more serious. First, what, why over the past 15 years or more, have we had an infatuation with superhero movies, right? Like Marvel and DC are just cranking out movies and we keep paying and watching them. What, what is it that captures our imagination about them? We want to see the good guys win and the bad guys lose, right? We want to see the Justice League defeat evil and we want to see the Avengers punish wrongdoing or wrongdoers. Our entertainment reflects our longing for justice in this world, that the good guys would win, the the bad guys would lose. Second, a a more serious one. What what gave rise to the Me Too movement of 2017 and beyond? A longing for justice, right? That, That people who have abused women and covered it up or just gotten away with it that, that that would be exposed, brought to the surface, and they'd be punished, and the wrongs would be made right. Like, we long for justice. Like, like imagine if what we read in this story, or in this passage, said this. And there were very powerful men who raped women, killed the weak and little children, oppressed the poor, and not only got away with it, but lived happy lives. There's a good chance that's describing some of what the Nephilim would be doing that they're these powerful, influential, violent people. 
And we would look at that and we say, that's not right. Someone should do something about that. And that's exactly what God does in this passage as he punishes evil and makes wrong what is right. Because a good God must also be a just God. I think every single person would say, if God exists, I hope he's good. Because if God exists and he's bad, that's really, really bad news for us. But the the, the Bible says, okay, the, the one true God who does exist is good, which means he's also just. Because if someone is not just, they also aren't good. Proverbs 18.5 makes this connection where the author says, it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. Someone who is not just is not good. Think, Think back to your days when if you played high school sports or college sports or in any league at all, I would guess there was a referee who had the reputation of not being good, right? And if you're warming up and you see that referee, him or her there, you think, ah, he is the worst. Why do we get stuck with this referee? What do you, what do you mean in that instance? What you really mean is that referee isn't just. That referee punishes the innocent with fouls and lets the guilty get away with fouls. So for someone to be good, they must also be just. If God simply sees evil and he just kind of shrugs his shoulder at it and says that, whatever, he's not good. Or if God punishes the innocent, he's not good. In some sense, we long or we should long for God to be just, but there's a catch and there's a really big catch. And here's what I think it is. We want God to be just on our terms. I want God to be just on my terms. In other words, that we take our understanding of justice and we impose that on God and say, here's what it means to be just, rather than letting God show and tell us what is just and what justice is. And, and, and we should realize when we think about it, our own sense of justice tends to be really skewed and biased. Right? Like our own sense of justice tends to be skewed. Just, just look back in history and think about all the things that people thought were right and defended as right that we now look back and say, well, that was really, really, really wrong, right? Slavery, how many people, how many Christians, this is right. And we look back now and think, no, 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 that was so wrong. How can you not, we shouldn't be so, I think, foolish to think that in 2023, we now have the perfect view of justice. And, And not only that, but our sense of justice is biased, right? Like, I want, ju- I want God to be just to the evil that's out there. But, but do I really want him to be just to the evil that's within me? Not, not usually. This, this is part of why we find the flood to be so surprising. Because God's justice will always confront and challenge our own sense of justice. Like, we, we can understand a God who kills a couple mean giants. If all this story said was God killed the Nephilim and wiped them out, I don't think we'd have any problem with it, right? I think we'd say, let's go. My God is a giant killer. I may not face Goliath, but I've got my own giants. Let's go. But when we recognize God sends a flood that kills all men 
women and children. We're prone to say, whoa, wait a second. That's not right. That's not just. On whose terms? On my terms. And, and, and it's here that, that, that I've got to recognize, either I have to say my standard of justice needs to be corrected by God, or God and his standard needs to be corrected by me. See, th- th- this is the one thing that does surprise us about this story. God's punishment of sin is severe. Like, there's just no way to read through the story of the flood and get, acro- get away from that. God's punishment of sin is severe. It's really easy to see if this is true for you. I think it's really easy for us to downplay the reality of the flood. Like, don't don't you prefer the nice, neat flannel graph of Sunday school, your childhood, right, with a boat floating on calm waters and, and people and animals sticking their faces out of the boat with smiles on their face compared to the terrifying reality of people struggling, screaming, being pulled out of there and drowned. That's a horrifying picture. And yet, isn't that a picture of what actually happened in the flood, where everyone's wiped out except Noah and his family? There's a sense in which reading this story should make us really uncomfortable, because it shows us how serious God's judgment of sin is and how severe it is. And, and if we don't see that and recognize it, then the story won't have its appropriate effect on us like it should. Yet, yet even as we see that, we should see a couple things with it. The, the first of all being this, that God's judgment is never an overreaction. God's judgment is never an overreaction. Do, do, you, do you recognize how easy it is for you to overreact and get angry or for me to overreact and get angry? We're so familiar with ourselves and we recognize how easy it is for us to like snap and flip out over minor things, right? Someone cuts us off and it's like, put them in prison, give them the life sentence. And you're like, oh wait, I did that yesterday too. Maybe not. And we recognize that, we all overreact. And then we might assume, well, God is like us. And so then we read this story and we think, maybe God's just overreacting here. but but we should never assume that God is like us, especially not when it comes to his anger and judgment. J.I. Packer captures it in this way. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. The story tells us God sees sin, all of it, that God grieves sin. Do you get that? He's, he's saddened. He's, he, he's shedding tears. He's sad over it. And then because he's holy and just, he determines to punish sin, all of it. But we should also see in this story, God's judgment of sin is often delayed by his patience. Like we read the story and we, we go essentially straight from God's pronouncement, I'm going to send a flood, to he's sending a flood. But that's not the actual timeline. Do you know what the actual timeline is? God makes this pronouncement, and then there's a hundred years, or likely a hundred years, between when he says he's going to send the flood and the flood actually comes. Like, what's happening in those hundred years? Noah's building an ark, a visible witness to God's coming judgment. And he's warning people, the flood is coming. God's judgment is coming. 
Second Peter 2.5 talks about Noah, and it says he is a, was a herald of righteousness. That word herald there is the word for preacher, that, that he's preaching, warning people, turn to God, repent. God's judgment is coming. For a hundred years, God warns people through Noah, and no one responds. They laugh it off. They say, no, it's not true, or they just ignore it. See, God is so often patient in sending his judgment, and his patience is meant to lead us to repentance and to seek forgiveness for our sins from him. Again, 2 Peter hits on this later in uh, chapter 3, verse 9, where Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. That's talking about Christ's return and God's coming judgment. Peter says, he's not slow, but, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But so often, what we start to do is we start to presume on God's patience. And we start to think he hasn't judged sin yet, so surely he's not going to judge sin. Picture, picture with me in a scenario. Imagine that you are driving home from your work. You're on your daily commute home. And as you're driving home, you, you pass a police officer sitting at a driveway clocking speed. And he clocks, you, you look down at your speedometer and you realize, I'm doing 50 in a 35. Not that you would ever do that, but 50 in a 35. And you tense up, you grab the steering wheel, you're like, oh, look in the mirror, I hope he doesn't come out, I hope he doesn't come out. And he doesn't come out. All right, good, thank goodness. And then every single day on your commute home, you pass that same police officer in the same spot. And, and rather than adjusting your speed, you start to actually forget that he's even there. You start to ignore it. And then one day, you look up in your rearview mirror and you see sirens. You're like, what, what's going on? And he pulls you over and comes up to your window and you say, whoa, whoa wait a second. Th- this isn't fair. Like I drove past you every single day and you never pulled me over. The police officer would have every right in that scenario to say, I gave you ample time and warning to change your speed. And yet you refused and ignored it. And, and now you must face the consequences, right? I think this is a picture of why we can be so shocked by stories of God's judgment in the Bible. Because of his patience with sinners, we come to presume he won't actually judge. And then when we see him doing it, we're like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. But, but we have to recognize God's judgment of sin is what we deserve. The, the flood is a visible picture of what you and I ultimately deserve. The, the description of people at the time of the flood in Genesis 6-5 is the same type of description given in Romans 3, 10 through 18 that describes all people everywhere at all times, including me and you. Just listen to Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The flood is a graphic picture, a graphic warning of what you and I deserve because of sin. There's this warning or this picture that's on every single car seat that's made. At least I think so. And I took a picture of it this past week because it's on the car seats that we have. 
And it's this picture of an airbag slamming into a child and kind of smashing them against the seat. And then it's a warning R in there that says, do not place rear-facing child seat on front seat with airbag. Death or serious injury can occur. It's a warning that says, if you use this incorrectly, this could happen. The flood is a warning or a picture that not just says, this could have happened to you, Kyle, but the flood is a picture that says, this should have. This is what you deserve. And, and, and unless, listen to this, unless you and I look at the flood and, and recognize that should be me, that should be me in those waters, that should be me drowning, like unless we can actually see that and say that, then we won't really be able to see the grace of God and say, it is absolutely amazing. We won't really be able to say about God's grace, it is utterly and entirely shocking and amazing. If we want to be shocked by grace, we have to be sobered by what we actually deserve. Because the one thing that should surprise us about this story is that God is gracious and makes a way for sinners to be saved. Melissa Kruger, in talking about this story, says this, The real question in this text is not, why did God judge all the people in the world? The real question is, why did God save Noah? The answer is grace. Grace. That's it. And there's three ways that we can even see that as we read through this story. The first is this, that God's grace finds Noah. Without grace, he's lost. God's grace finds Noah. Without grace, he's lost. Verse 8 tells us, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Favor there is the word for grace. And what's interesting is that commentators say we should actually read that verse backwards to get its true sense. If we read it backwards, what would it say? Grace found Noah. Think about that picture. Noah is not out hunting for grace, searching for it far and wide until finally he finds it. No, God sets Noah in his sights and he comes after him and he pursues him and God's grace finds him and rescues him and God shows undeserved favor, grace to him. If, if you're a follower of Christ, this is your story as well. God found you. Grace found you. You and I were lost, but God pursued us, came after us, chased us, found us, and, and your story was forever changed. Like, pl please, don't miss, please don't miss this. Your salvation and my salvation, it doesn't ultimately lie in a decision that we made or a change that we initiated or a desire to get our act together. It lies in the fact that God's grace found you and utterly changed you and I. And if you're still lost and you're trying to navigate this life on your own and you're just trying to work hard enough and prove that you're good enough and it's just wearying and tiring, well then give up. Give up and throw yourself against God's grace. And in that moment, God's grace will find you as well. Though we deserve to be lost, God finds us. That's grace. And God's grace rescues Noah. Without grace, Noah is doomed. It's God who tells Noah, build a boat. It's not as if Noah says, ah, hey, I'm out in the desert and it might be a really good idea to build a boat just in case a flood comes. No, God says, no, God says to Noah, build a boat because the flood's coming. And we shouldn't miss Noah's faith as he obeys. We'll hit, we'll hit on that more next week. 
But it's God who tells Noah to build the boat. It's God who tells Noah, get in the boat. And it's God who shuts the door of the boat, seals it, keeping Noah and his family in and the flood out. Every step of the way, God rescues Noah from impending doom. Though we deserve to be doomed, God rescues us. That's grace. And then God's grace preserves Noah. Without grace, Noah is hopeless. The the hinge of this entire story in Genesis 6 through 9 comes in chapter 8, verse 1. The whole story is set up as a chiasm, which is just a fancy word for saying a sideways triangle. And everything on one side of the triangle is reflected on the other side with a point at the center. And what's at the center of the story of the flood? Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah. You might say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean God forgot all about little old Noah and then finally his memories jog? He's like, oh yeah, that's right, I, I promise. No, no, no. When the Bible says about God remembers someone, saying he's showing faithful love to them, saying God is for that person, saying God is going to do good to that person and bless that person. At this moment in the story, the floodwaters are at their highest. The boat has just been floating around for 150 days. And then God makes the flood subside, brings Noah and his family out into a brand new renewed creation. Noah's hope on the boat in the face of the flood is that God will remember him and do good to him. And that's your hope and my hope every single day of our lives, that God will remember us and do good to us day after day after day. And that's what God promises to do because of his grace. Though we deserve to be cast off and forgotten by God, God day by day remembers us and does good to us. That's grace. We we might ask in the face of all that, why did God show Noah grace and save him and his family? I don't know. I, I don't know. And it's the same answer that I'd have if you'd say, Kyle, why did God show you grace and save you? I don't know. It's interesting, R.C. Sproul talks about teaching students, and he says, in two decades of teaching theology, I have had countless students ask me why God doesn't save everybody. Only once did a student come to me and say, there is something I just can't figure out. Why did God redeem me? Sproul says, "We, we are not really surprised that God has redeemed us. Somewhere deep inside, in the secret chambers of our hearts, we harbor the notion that God owes us his mercy. What amazes us is his justice, not grace. The story of the flood is in the Bible to remind us what should amaze us is not God's justice, but his grace to us because the flood is ultimately just a dress rehearsal for a greater display of God's justice and grace. It's first of all a dress rehearsal for the cross, right? It's at the cross where we most clearly see God's justice and grace display. It's at the cross where where the punishment for sin is put fully on Jesus' shoulders and, and where we have to be left now looking at the cross saying, that's what I ultimately deserve, And and yet it's at the cross that God ultimately displays his grace as he makes a way for sinners to be saved and forever to do good to them through his son. See, the, the, the most important question of your life and of my life, and I don't think this is an overstatement, the most important question is, have I trusted in Christ? Like, have I repented of my sin, trusted in him? Am I united to him by faith? And if you have, Rather than expecting to face God's judgment and wrath for your sin, all you and I can ever expect to receive is grace. 
And that's the most important question of your life and my life and every single person's life because the flood is just a dress rehearsal for another day as well. Christ's return and God's coming judgment, final judgment on sin. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 24. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus warns God's judgment is coming again. And it's going to be just like the flood, unexpected, or at a time that's unexpected. And this judgment will be even worse than the flood, we're warned. Listen to Revelation 6, 15 through 17. People hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For, great, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Do you hear what they're saying there? They're saying, give us a natural disaster. Give us a flood instead of this. And, and notice in that verse, who's the one who's doing the judgment? The lamb. The one who says, takes away our sins. The one who the cross died for our sins. And, and yet in the final judgment, we find that those who are not found in him then face judgment from him. God's judgment on sin is serious. He will judge sin. It will be severe. It will be terrifying. And yet, just as God did with the ark, so also he does with Jesus. He makes a way through his judgment. He makes a way where there is no other way. Jesus, that Jesus is the way to receive God's grace and pass through his judgment. And, and so if you're someone who's here this morning, you're not a follower of Christ, the, the the application of the story is trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. He's the way, he's the ark that God has given to us. And if you're someone who's here who is trusting in Christ, your faith is in Christ, I want to give three ways that I think this story should impact our lives. Here's the first one. We should live with grateful joy. Picture a scenario with me for a moment. Picture being on the ark with Noah on day 143. You've been in close quarters with your family for 143 days. How about you? That doesn't sound great, right? We had to do it for like 60 days during COVID and we started to lose our minds. You, you've ate the same thing probably every single day. What's for breakfast? The same thing you had on day one. Maybe one of you is seasick again from all the waves. You've had, you're, you're having the same argument you've had a hundred times already. The animals are really starting to stink, and so are you. Right? Like the flood, like the, being on the ark was not comfortable. It would have been miserable at times. It would have been frustrating. It, it, it would have been discouraging. Now, now, what in that moment could bring you gratitude and joy in the midst of those lousy circumstances? Look out the window. Look out the window. Look at the water beneath you and recognize that's what I deserve. Praise God for the grace of the ark. In an instant, that could change complaining to gratitude. In an instant, that could change woe is me to joy. And isn't it the same thing for us? This past week, like any week, there were things that went wrong in my week. Probably the same for you. 
And, and, and I'll say they weren't major things, but they were frustrating, like not being able to get enough sleep because of a crying infant, like a date night with my wife that I was really looking forward to getting canceled, like just dealing with the, the frustrations at times of having a toddler in the household and other things. And yet what was interesting is that as I was studying this story, those things seemed just a little bit smaller this week. They were still frustrating, they were still disappointing, but, but there was this sense in which they're not really that big of a deal. Like God's grace can have that effect on us. When we're amazed at grace because we recognize we deserve far worse, that can give us thankfulness and joy in the midst of whatever it is we're facing. Second, we should live with purposeful mission. If God's judgment is real and serious and coming for all those who don't know Christ, it should move us in our mission to reach those who don't know Christ, to get the word out about Jesus. This past week, I I was uh, typing this on Friday. I forget what time it was, probably around 12 o'clock. And all of a sudden, an alarm went off on my phone. And not an alarm that I had set. It was a bah, 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 bah. Maybe you had one go off on your phone too. It was telling me, hey, there might be a tornado coming. And it was warning me to take cover and find shelter because there might be a tornado. If we believe God's judgment for sin is coming, we should be moved to warn and tell other people, take cover, find shelter in Christ. This is what God provides for you. Don't ignore, don't reject, come to him. What am I going to do to help seek to save the lost? Who in my life can I pray for and seek to tell about Jesus? Who are the missionaries that are telling people about Jesus that can support and pray for? Like, if we really believe in God's justice and grace, it should move us and motivate us in our mission. And then thirdly, we should live with a gracious demeanor. When When we see what we deserve, and yet the grace that we've been shown, it should radically impact our demeanor. How can I possibly see how great God's grace is and then turn around and be harsh, impatient, judgmental, and arrogant with other people? And yet I know I still am that way many times, and and you likely are as well. Why? Because we're prone to forget just how amazing and great God's grace is. And when we do, it inevitably affects the way we treat other people. And yet when we remember how great God's grace is to us, it inevitably affects the way we treat other people. Our kids, our wives, our coworkers, people we just go across in the street, the person who cuts you off and trap, it inevitably spills out of us. I, I, I'm guessing at some point in your life, you, you've been invited somewhere to a surprise party. And when the person who that party was for showed up, in that instant, you could tell whether they were really surprised or not, right? Like if they were surprised, you could read it all over their face. Their eyes get big, their mouth drops open, maybe they get a smile and they say something like, is this this for me? But the more surprised someone is in that moment, the more it shows. The, The more surprised you and I are by God's grace, the more it will show in our lives. Like, like the days that we are most amazed, God has been gracious to me, he's saved me, he's given up a son for me, is the days where I would guess it's most evident in your life, in the joy that you have, 
in your desire to reach those who don't know Christ, and in your ability to be gracious with others around you. It's the days where we forget God's grace, or we think it's ordinary, that our joy suffers, our mission slows, and our demeanor sours. So remember God's grace. Remember how great it is. Remember what you and I deserved, judgment, and yet what we've been given, grace. Remember, we ultimately deserve the flood, but we've been given Christ. Praise God for that. Let's pray. God, we praise you for what we've already sung this morning. Our sins are many. We don't praise you for that, but we acknowledge that. Our sins are many. And when we honestly recognize your holiness, your justice, we're confronted with our sins should cause us to be destroyed. But praise God, thank you that your mercy is more. That how, however big the, the ocean of our sin is, it's but a drop in the massive ocean of your mercy that's offered to us in Christ. God, please remind us of that. Please help us to believe that. Please help us to tell others about that. And I pray that it would transform our lives, that we might live with a sense of joy and grace towards other people as well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.